Well, good morning. Big picture for today. I believe what I believe a, a simple truth, and I think that plagues the church today, is that people are going around mostly in America, and they're they're trying to figure out by going to church how to fit Jesus into their life. When in reality, what the Scripture shows us today is that. We should be about how do we fit our lives into Jesus. It's the difference between going to church and being the church. Huge difference when you think about it. What I love about the passage and what I think is really cool, because God doesn't ever do anything just mediocrately. He does it extraordinarily. And when you look at this passage, uh, if you actually look at the verse before, um, it says that after Peter finished his great sermon, it says, with many words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this corrupt or crooked generation. And in verse 41, it says, those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the day of Pentecost. Uh, Pentecost means 50, and it usually takes place seven weeks after um, the resurrection, right? And so we look at this passage. We don't find it in the Old Testament because Pentecost is a, is a Greek word. In the Old Testament, it was called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of the Harvest. And what it commemorated was Moses bringing down the stone tablets with God's word on them. Now, the interesting thing, the way that correlates to this story to me is really interesting and, and, and sort of foundational. And I don't know if it was lost on the apostles at this day, but for us, it's a great way to search scriptures and why I think scripture is really cool. So when Moses comes down from the mountain, he was up there fasting for 40 days, and he, he, God handwrites on these tablets his Ten Commandments. Moses brings them down, but by the time he can't bank down, the nation of Israel in the camp sort of rebelled forced Aaron to build a calf of gold, and they started worshiping this calf of gold. So they totally disregarded all the things that God had done. And Moses comes down with these tablets. He sees the rebellion in Israel, and he gets angry, the Bible says, and he throws the tablets down. He breaks the tablets down, and then he calls the Levites unto him, and he sends them through the camp to bring God's judgment, and they kill about 3,000 people. Now, why is that significant when you think about it? Think about this. Moses brought the law, and that we know the law brings death, right? That's what the Bible says, right? The wages of sin is death. The law brings death. So here comes the law of God. It comes on the nation of Israel, and since they're in rebellion, they are under the law and the conviction of the law, and it says the law brings death. The interesting thing is now we find some 2,000 years later here, we get Jesus says to his apostles, hey, go and wait for my Holy Spirit to come. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. They start sprinkling, you know, tongues of fire, the Bible says. And then Peter gets up and, uh, on that Sunday, and he starts to preach a message in the power of the Spirit. Because if you read his message, it isn't all that powerful, right? It's just the basic truth of Scripture. And what does the Holy Spirit do through all these people? It reaches, and the church goes from 120 to 3,120 some odd people, just like that. What a correlation. Moses brings the law, it brings death. The Holy Spirit comes, and he brings life. The new age has come, the, the age of grace, the age of God's power to work amongst the sinful humanity to bring life out of darkness. 
It's an awesome picture when you think about it, and it sort of precedes going into this whole passage of how it transformed those who heard the message that day and all of a sudden started worshiping Jesus. They realized that Christ came not just to save them, but to live in and through them to give them a mission to be him in the world, right? In other words, they weren't worried about going to church. They were focused on being the church. They weren't focused on how do I fit Christ in my life. They wanted to know how our lives can be transformed for putting them in Christ. Complete difference when you look at it and what it's all about. The interesting thing is I think sometimes we don't recognize that we are the best organization in the world, bar none. When you think of what Jesus did and what he gave us and what the Holy Spirit's been doing, we are the best organization in the world because we have the best product, don't we? The gospel. Wherever the gospel goes, when it's plainly spoken and truly lived out, it has an effect, doesn't it? No matter what language, what country, what culture, when the gospel comes, the gospel is God's way of reaching the world, right? Not only do we have the best product, but we have the best benefits, don't we? We got forgiveness of sins. We got purpose for today. We got hope for tomorrow and our future. And bar none, we have the best We don't have a retirement package. We have the best death benefit that there is anywhere. It's heaven, a place that's being prepared for us. I mean, we are the best organization because we're global, right? There is an assemblance or resemblance of the church in every country of the world. We're everywhere and anywhere the gospel goes. It's amazing the effect it has on people. When the gospel was first spoken in Jerusalem that day, it reached over 3,000 people. And I believe that we should have the hearts of that early church where they were pursuing a God who was passionate about pursuing the lost. Sometimes it, I think the church loses sight of all this. I read a great story this week from you know, Charles Connie. He tells of a time when he lived in Atlanta and he noticed in the yellow pages a listing of a restaurant an entry place called the Church of God Grill. It's an interesting story. It was the Church of God. It was a mission, and the mission needed to make money to support the mission, so they started making chicken and selling it for people after service. The chicken was so good. They got so much business from the chicken, they forgot the mission and focused on being a restaurant. Isn't that interesting? They saw so much success in being in a restaurant, they forgot the mission was to reach souls. And I think that sometimes we don't recognize that sometimes churches tend to wander away from their mission. Instead of being a great church, they chose to be a great restaurant. To me, I think that sometimes the purpose of the church can get lost. Statistics say that 89% of a church attenders believe that church's purpose is to take care of their family and their own needs. Only 11% believe the church's purpose is to win the world for Christ. Isn't that amazing? Only 11% of believers today, when polled by Barna, believed that the church's purpose is to win souls for Christ. I've heard too many times people complain that a church doesn't meet their needs, and I think sometimes getting, they don't realize is that we're not, the church doesn't exist to meet our needs. The church exists to meet the needs of those far 
from God. Think about this statistic. 60%, I mean, 60, over 60 churches a week in America close. It's over 3,000 a year. 90% of the churches in America have plateaued. In other words, they're not growing. In fact, most churches are in decline. And only 1% of the churches in America are growing because they're reaching lost people. Most church growth is from transfers or people going from church to church or when a church closed, they get those people that are coming in. It says something about our mission. Christopher White said, without the mission, a church is not a church. It's a group of disobedient Christians just hanging out. Isn't that true? Most believers don't know how to disciple other people. The one thing that can propel a church into the next generation and to the ends of the earth is when we have spirit-filled people making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. That's the purpose of the church. That's what we're called together to do. I like the illustration where a lot of people look at the, the, the church as a, as a ship, right? Some people think it's a cruise liner. They're there for the entertainment. They want to be entertained. They want to be, they sort of want their needs met, their felt needs met, emotional needs met. It's all about the experience. It's really not what the purpose of the church is about, but they're entertained. Some think it, a, the church should be a battleship, an institution that fights battles and pays pastors to find targets to fire their guns at every week, such as sin, and the congregation gathers to sort of root them on, or they're programs and their services are meant to attack some of the ills of the world, sort of a battleship. But I believe the church should be an aircraft carrier where you prepare people each and every week to fly off the deck out into the world to do what? To bring the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost world in need of a savior. Because the law still exists, does it not? The law still there. And the reality is what happens in Vegas doesn't stay in Vegas. And people need a savior for their sin. It's interesting because when you look at it, J.D. Greer said churches must become discipleship factories, sending agencies that equip their members to take the battle to the enemy. Isn't that true? We're here to gear each other up to go out each and every week to do what? Witness to other people. We're in... uh, Starting point class today, and Jason put up a point which I, lo- I liked. It was about a church in California where they asked how much their marketing budget was, and they said their marketing budget is zero. We, we expect our people to be our message out in the world. We expect our people by word of mouth to spread what God is doing in their lives. That's true. That should be what the church does, going out in the world and telling people what God has done for us. Our mission is found in the Great Commission and played out in the book of Acts at the inception of the church. The church exists for the mission of making disciples. I believe that growing in your love for God is foundational for a Christian to live that life in Christ to have the life of Christ in them influence the world around them. It's taught in the Old Testament, and it's confirmed in the New Testament. Deuteronomy 6.5 says, And thou shalt love the Lord your God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Amen? 
Mark 12.30 says, And thou shalt love the Lord your God with all thy heart and all thy soul, with all thy mind and with all thy strength. And this is the first commandment, to love God. It's amazing because you know what? I don't know if, if what I love about the passage that we read is it says that they were in awe of what God was doing amongst them. Some translations say fear, but I like the word awe. Awe gives us this little sense that they're just mesmerized by what God was doing in their midst. Think about it. Can you imagine going someplace and watching 3,000 people come to know the Lord in one day? See, we are to be a church that's Jesus-focused, all about Christ, all about what his purpose is and what his mission is for his church. It starts with salvation. It commences with salvation. C.S. Lewis said that Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or he was Lord, right? Josh McDowell championed that as well, meaning that he's one of those three things. If he was a liar, who would follow him? If he was a lunatic, crazy for the things he said, but if the things he said were true, he cannot be anything but Lord, See, a Lord is a term that we don't appreciate in our culture today because we think of like a CEO or president of the United States, right? A president is somebody that sort of dictates things that we have the ability to decide whether we follow or not or agree with or we don't agree with. But when somebody's the Lord of your life, they're in control of your life. They're guiding your life. That's the difference. The church is an organization that's still run by its founder, Jesus Christ. It's beautiful when you think about it, but I think the foundation of the church is grounded in the truth of the gospel. Our faith depends on it, and our motivation to serve God is fueled by that. When we realize the gospel and appreciate it for what it is and the reality of our own lives, it does one thing for us to do is to tell everybody else about Jesus. I used to drive downtown for 20 years, and I'd listen to the news every day because I wanted to see what traffic was like because living where I live, I could take 57 up to the Dan Ryan. I could take the Grange Road up to 55 and take the Stevenson in, or I could take the Dan Ryan up to, uh, uh, to 95th Street and then circle over and go up Stony Island. I had a lot of different ways to go, so I listened on the radio. And I remember one day I was listening on the radio, and they said it was like two hours because there was a bad accident on the Dan Ryan. And so it blocked 55 as well. And so as I got up to where the Dan Ryan and 57 meet, I think I'm going to slip over and I'm going to go up Stony Island and avoid the whole mix. And as I'm going, almost everybody is still going towards the Dan Ryan to go downtown. And I'm thinking, why would those people not listen to the news or listen or see it? They just kept going. So I called the guy that was behind me that I knew traveled the same way. I said, listen, don't go on to Dan Ryan. It's packed today. Go take the Stony Island. He didn't listen to me. He went down to Dan Ryan. It was two hours late. It's interesting. We have the greatest message in the world. And the problem with the church isn't that we, we don't recognize that it's the greatest message in the world. It's that what we're doing with it, or more importantly, what we're not doing with it. What we're not sharing, what we're not telling people. And they're driving down this road into disaster, into what the Bible calls the pit of hell because they don't know Christ. And we're just thinking, man, I'm glad I'm on this road, aren't I? And we're forsaking those who God's called us to witness to. And that's what it means to be the church, is to go out there and rescue those who are dying. Sinclair Ferguson said, The foundation of our love for the Lord lies in the recognition of his holiness, our sinfulness, and his grace, those who are forgiven much, love much. Isn't that true? 
when we recognize how much we've been forgiven for who we are. It should compel us and motivate us and inspire us to do one thing and one thing only is to tell other people their need of Jesus. That's what it means to be the church. And when we're doing all those things collectively together, motivating and meeting each and every week as a big group to go out and get inspired and to learn and to think about it differently, we should take that into the world and take it to our families, our neighbors, and in our workplace. Our relationship continues with identification. We identify with Christ in baptism and church membership, and it's all cultivated through worship. When I got married to my wife, I put on a ring that said, I am hers for my rest of my life. This doesn't make me married. It just says I'm married. Baptism does the same thing. Baptism doesn't save anybody. It just says I identify with Jesus Christ publicly and within my family. I like what Vance Havner said. We may never be martyrs, but we can die to self, to sin, to the world, to our plans and ambitions. That is the significance of baptism. We died with Christ and we rise to a new life. Amen? Being a member of a local church is a commitment to a body of believers, a body of doctrine, and to the body of Christ. We're not to gather <coughs> begrudgingly submission, but in delightful obedience, knowing that when God's people make much of Jesus together, something spiritually profound happens. Awe grips us. When's the last time you've been gripped with awe over Jesus? where you just were taken up by who he is and what he's really done for you. And whenever that happens, don't you just want to share it with somebody? Don't you just want to tell people about Jesus and what he's done for you? That's the call of what happened. That they got caught up with on the day of Pentecost. They got caught up with, with who God is and what he came to do and what he was purposed to do. We should never have to convince people we should never have to convince, let me say that again, we should never have to convince Christians, people who are said to be believers of Jesus Christ, of their need to go to church, of their need to be part of a growth group. You look in that passage, it says they met in the temple courts daily. You know, we think we're pretty good because we come once a week. Daily, they were meeting in the temple courts to sit under the, the disciples' teaching. That temple court was like 54 acres big. And they went there as a giant group and they were getting teaching from the disciples. And then what does it said later? They found them in people's homes sharing meals, right? So they had this big corporate worship that was supplemented and to be empowered by this personal worship. People together with people doing life together and trying to figure it all out. To me, that's the power of the church. You have this time of gathering where we sit and we get teaching from the scriptures, God's word, and we all collectively learn and, and grow and get a message of how we're supposed to go out into the world. And then, on a weekly basis, we also meet with a group of people that we're doing life with so that we can share some of the things that are going on, the help we need, the encouragement we need, and everything else that goes with it. That's why they were in awe. In essence, sin is a fundamental failure to rejoice in what we should rejoice in, and that is God. So when we come in here each and every morning, it's not about what songs are being played, whether they're repetitious or whether they're 
hymns or whether they're praise or whatever, whatever. To me, it's about I get an opportunity to worship God and show him how much I love him. And I can sing those, those ad, that admiration to him through song. That's the purpose of it. That's why we gather, not to critique it or evaluate it or figure out whether we like it or not. Do you think God is up in heaven thinking, I don't like that song? Oh, there's too much repetition in that one. Oh, they're using a guitar. I don't think he's thinking any of those things. I think he's looking in the hearts of each and every one of us in here and wondering, do we really mean what we're singing? And do we care enough about him to sing in spite of whatever's being played? That's what I think. I think that's who he is and that's what he does. And that's why I think our our relationship in the church gets cultivated through our worship. It's both personal and corporate. A church gathers for worship should employ a sense of awe and anticipation of what God's going to do in our midst right here today. Did you come this morning thinking, man, I wonder what God's going to do today? Because if you didn't, he's not going to do anything. God loves hearts that are anticipated. I I met with somebody yesterday. I was really blessed. And it really changed the way I went to the message. I went to talk to somebody and I, they said, I, I just want to ask, tell you something, that, hey, I, I've struggled this past year with your vision. I, I couldn't see your vision. And then she thought about it for a little bit, and she says, no, I didn't want to see your vision. But now that all this has taken place, and I see what God's been doing, and I see how God's working in my life, I just want to say I'm sorry for not seeing what you were doing. You blessed me. I was in awe of God because I would have never expected that. Sometimes we just got to sit back and say, okay, God, in every encounter, I'm going to stand in awe of what you can do through me in this situation. And it's amazing what God does. If we believe that he can and that he will. I love what David said, that church is bigger and more beautiful than any person here today. And David said this, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go through the throng and lead them in procession in the house of God with glad shouts of joy and songs of praise and the multitude keeping festival. David prided himself and took pleasure in leading God's people into the temple of God to worship. I believe that's why he was called a man after God's own heart. How much of us, how many of us come into church each and every week anticipating an an encounter with the living God in worship? You know, it's interesting because when I was in the army, we would go out and do patrols, right? And we'd often have to go out at night. And a lot of times, you know, if you were the point guy, you'd have to lead or you'd have to go out on your own reconnaissance and come back. And it's interesting because when I was out there by myself, you're all alone in the woods and it's dark and you're thinking, man, you know, it's kind of weird. But it's amazing when I went out with my platoon, totally different because we knew we were all on mission together. We all knew we were trying to accomplish. There wasn't any fear. It was about mission and purpose. And I think it's somewhat the same with the church. Nobody's meant to live alone the Christian life. It's meant to be formed in community. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. Fellowship is social interaction around spiritual things. We're meant to live in community. 
God said that Adam wasn't supposed to live alone, and neither should we as individuals. Families, connected with families, doing life together is the purpose of the church in such a way that they go out and influence other families that don't know God and don't know Christ. To me, there's so many people who are trying to walk through their spiritual life on their own, and it isn't working. And when you step out of the community, you start to lose your fire, and it's the same that thing that happens when you take the coals out of the fire. They sort of die. To me, I think uh, when, it, when we recognize that God's called us to the one another's, to encourage one another, to build one another up, to all these one another's that Scripture says that the church should be a self-generating momentum engine for each and every one of us to go out and do what? To be Christ to the world around us. To me, I think fellowship is the difference between we go to church and we are the church. To me, when we get our witness, and what I mean there, not, didn't mispronounce it, our witness, when we're all together and we're with one another, that witness, witness empowers our witness. That witness, being together in life and doing life together, makes us, motivates us to go out and do what? To be the church. To do the things the church does. To be a learning church, a loving church, a living church, and a lighting church. To me, the church, when we speak of fellowship, it's about loving and caring for one another. And if we read the passage, it said they sold things and gave to each other. It said nobody had any wants. So caring to me means sharing with others. Sometimes I wonder if we even know the needs of all those around us. And you really can't know them outside smaller groups. And that's where needs get revealed and met. Proverbs 18.1 says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Isn't that true? When we isolate ourselves from brothers and sisters, it's amazing how we start to think of what we want, what we need. Me, myself, and I. And not about others. Not about what God has for us. And we start to focus inwardly, and we're not looking outwardly, and nothing good comes from that. God says we're to live life in community. Max Licato said that he, he calls us a fast society, an efficient society, but don't call us a personal society. A society is set up for isolation. We wear earbuds when we exercise. We communicate via email and text message. We enter and exit our house with gates and garage door openers. Our mantra is, I leave you alone, you leave me alone. Isn't that true? We're not to be isolated, but we're to be insulated. Moving from the midst of evil, untouched by it. Separation is contact without contamination from the world. Jesus was holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners, yet he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Isolated, not apart from the world, amongst ourselves in order to do what? To influence the world. That's the calling of the church. Being a member of a church means realizing that we're responsible for helping brothers and sisters around us to grow as what? Disciples of Christ. To me, I think that a reservation to commit to community is like a guy who never proposes, just wants to date forever. He's afraid of commitment. 
to me, I think the calling of the church, the calling of Christ, is not just a commitment to Jesus, but it's a commitment to one another. That's what the church is supposed to be all about. That's where our spiritual security comes from. When we're in Christ, nothing can stop the work of his church. To me, I, you read the passage in Matthew 16, I want to touch upon it. Jesus said to his disciples, he was talking around, he was in Caesarea Philippi. And while he was there, he asked his disciples, you know, what the, who did people say that I am? And they all had different answers for that. And then he looked at uh, them and he said, well, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the son of the living God, you are the Christ, right? And so he says, hey, uh, my father in heaven revealed that to you. And he urged them not to tell anybody. The interesting thing is that in the place they were, Caesarea Philippi, uh, if, you, if you look at the rabbinical tradition there, and I believe geography plays a big part of this, right there there was a giant wall, sort of like Mount Rushmore, you know, on a little bit smaller scale. And inside that wall were built the uh, pagan gods, Baal and Ashroth, and they were just carved into that wall. And at the bottom of that wall was where the Jordan River started. And the rabbinical tr- tr- tradition called that the gates of hell, right? And so Jesus, when he responds to Peter's uh, confession of who he was, he says, you know, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, or the gates of hell will not prevail against it, Right? Kind of interesting when you put it in the geography, right? He's basically saying that hell is on a defensive against the church. So here's the thing. I had this great illustration planned. I was trying to find a coffin. Jason called some people. I called some people. And what I was going to do was I was going to put this coffin right in front here. And I was going to put flowers on it. And I was going to explain to you the reason why churches die. There's only one reason why churches die. Because if you read the passage from uh, from Christ here, he's saying, hey, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church, because I'm building it, right? And so I was going to put this coffin here, and then I was going to tell everybody that the reason why all churches die, and if there's 60 in a week in America, the reason why 60 churches in America die, it's only one reason, and I'm gonna, I would open it up, and I'd say, I'd like you to file one by one when you leave, and I want you to see the reason why churches die. And then inside that coffin, I was going to strategically place a nice little mirror that was kind of tilted up so that when you walked by, you would have saw your face. Because the reality is, the reason why churches die, nothing to do with Christ. It has everything to do with us. And that's the problem with us. We don't really think about it that way. We really think it's the pastor's responsibility. Or to me, I think that we don't really recognize that it's us. We're called to be the church. Without Christ, we can't, and without us, he won't. Without Christ, the church can't, but without us, he won't. To me, that should sort of be a <clears throat> admonition for us to recognize that we are the church. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. The question are, are we being the church? To me, a gate is not an instrument of attack. It's an instrument of defense. I've never gone and watched a World War II movie or World War I movie or any movie where the enemy's coming at people with a gate. 
purpose there is the church is to storm the gates. It means the church is not some sort of punching bag for Satan. The church is the organization which goes out and presses against the gates of hell, against Satan's domain, against the hopelessness of torment, against stubbornness, against sin and death, against the desire not to follow God's way. The church goes out against all of this, and rebellion is returned to pre- repentance. Judgment is turned into grace. Hopelessness is turned into forgiveness. And the gates of hell groan and crumble as the church overcomes the power of darkness in this world. That's what it means to be the church. The question, are we the church? And you always have to ask the question when churches st- st- start to not grow. People aren't being reached. People aren't inviting. It's a question you've got to ask, right? The Bible always tells us to test ourselves to see if we're in the faith. In other words, test ourselves to see if we're being faithful to the mission. Because the mission isn't just come. The mission is to go out and be the church in the world. To be Christ to others. Coming's great. It's part of it. So we get fed and we get fueled to go out and be a light in the darkness. It's part of what we should do and must do. Jesus said before you die, he died. He said, I'll tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm, not going, to the, I'm, because I'm going to the Father. In other words, Jesus said, if you believe in me, you're going to do greater things than I did. Think about it. That one day at the temple of the day of Pentecost saw more people that got saved than in all of Jesus' three and a half years on earth, ministry on earth. Think about that. That's the same amount of people, when you think about it, that perished in 9-11, about 3,000 people. How devastating for that was for our country when we saw 3,000 people lose their lives for some terrorist activity. But yet every day, thousands of people in America go to a Christless eternity, and I don't think we bat an eye. The power of God is vested when God's people understand their calling and their mission and stand in awe of who he is and the power he provides us to change the world around us. To me... It's incredible when you think of what happened on the day of Pentecost. He launched the church to launch a movement, to launch a force that that can never be stopped as long as we're in Christ. So the challenge for each and every one of us today is where is our heart? Is our heart focused on the things that we're not experiencing in the church? We're not seeing in the church the way church is done. Because in the end, Christ into our lives, it's about making ourselves part of Christ and what he's doing through the church. Amen? Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we thank you that you've provided for us as a church. We're grateful, Lord, that you gave us your spirit to lead and guide us in all truth. We're thankful that you remind us of our calling, that you remind us that, Lord, you are an unstoppable force. And that, Lord, you are passionately pursuing the lost. May that be our heart this morning. And, Lord, I I, I ask that there's any person here this morning who's not recognized their need of a Savior, that they don't recognize that they themselves are sinners and that there's no forgiveness of sin according to your word, word except without the shedding of blood. What an awesome thing you did on the cross at Calvary. You shed your blood for the sins of man so that we may be forgiven and have a relationship with you for eternity. If someone here has never done that, Lord, I would ask that you would just speak to their heart right now. And right where they're sitting, they would just pray, Lord, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Come into my heart. Take over my life. Help me to put my life in you and live as you would have me to live in a world that needs to see truth lived out. And for all of us, Lord, who are believers who have done that and claim to be Christians and following you, Christ followers, Lord, may you help us to remind ourselves of the mission, the purpose which you called us, to be your hands and your feet, your voice in the world all around us. And what a better day to do it on Mother's Day when we're around family to share the truth of how you've transformed us and how, Lord, you meet every need. Help us, Lord, to realize the mission, our purpose, our calling. Help us as a church, Lord, to embrace all that you have for us as we move forward into a season of harvest with VBS and many other things coming up, that, Lord, we would see your hand and your power at work in us as we are the church in Manhattan and Monee and all around. We thank you, Lord. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.